Today, we come to a passage of scripture in our series, Far From the Shallow, and we are going to talk about Isaac, the son of Abraham. And what we find in this section of scripture, though it is really short, we find that it is significant because it continues the ongoing promise that God made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, to get started, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever taken a coin and thrown it into a well or into a fountain? And if so, why? Now think about all the ways we human beings seek to experience the wonder of life. We might explore the outdoors. We might gather in a place of worship. We might explore the beauty of the arts. uh, We might seek deep connection with other people. But what about something as simple as tossing a coin into a well or into a fountain. Now, whether it's the famous Trevi fountain in Rome or whether it's just the fountain inside your local mall, you'll find that water is filled with loose change that's left by visitors. Why do they do that? Some people think it's for good luck. Maybe some think that it is uh, a way of getting best wishes to come true. Others uh, simply do it out of habit because they've seen other people do it. But it began in superstition. The ancient Germanic and Celtic people believed to have begun this practice because they left coins as offerings to the gods that they believed would protect their sacred water sources. Now, such beliefs may be quaint or even sacrilegious today, but as it turns out, there is something special that happens when we toss that coin. Anthropologist Peter Logan suggests the simple gesture of tossing a coin into a public fountain is a scaled down version of other experiences that we have had in life that gives us a sense of awe, a sense of purpose, maybe a sense of fulfillment. That makes it interesting when we come to the passage we're looking at today. Everything is about wells. You can see that the wells of the ancient Near East were significant because they provided a life-giving source. We began our service this morning quoting Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, everyone who thirsts come to the water. And as we come to the story of Isaac today, what we find is here is an individual whose name means laughter because he was born to Abraham and Sarah at such an old age. Last week, we saw that Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain to offer him up to Yahweh, the Most High God, as an offering of the firstborn. He had faith, we really do believe, because when Isaac asked the question to Abraham, where is the sacrifice for the offering that we're going to make? And he says, the Lord will provide. And that's exactly what God did. He provided a ram in the thicket. God never intended that Abraham offer Isaac like the rest of the pagan religions do. But what we see is that Isaac is an ongoing link to the Abrahamic covenant that is found in chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17. So in many ways, this is an important section, although it's very short, doesn't give us a lot of details about the personal life of Isaac, 
But what we find is that there is a connection to what will come later. Well, next week we talk about Jacob and Jacob then becomes Israel and the nation of Israel is born from an encounter where he wrestles with God, but that's for next week. So in our scripture passage today, we read a selection about Isaac and we read a selection about him digging wells. So you can find this in chapter uh, 24, chapter 25, chapter 26 of the book of Genesis. And it's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's important to note that there are wells that are dug, they are fought over, and there is a means whereby Isaac is able to bring the community together. So hang on to that for a second, and we'll come back to it. The importance of wells in the Bible as a whole is very important. Uh, throughout the Bible, love stories begin at wells, wars were fought over wells, angels comforted people at wells, and Jesus met the needs of people at wells. They were significant places because they were, they were where significant events occurred. And certainly in the hot, arid, dry climate of Israel, wells are all about life. Without water, animals wouldn't thrive and crops wouldn't grow and people would be overwhelmed by thirst and life would be unsustainable. Without water, what you have is a desert. And that's clear and it's pretty obvious. But wells represent something more than that as well. To possess a well was to represent independence. And these wells were often inherited from one generation to the next. So therefore, it was a symbol, really, of blessing that they have their own territory, they have their own land, they have their own plot, they have their own water source, they have all they need to sustain life. Now, God wasn't just giving Isaac a place to settle, but he was also establishing a future nation called Israel. And God is continuing this idea of creating a place of promise and blessing in a foreign land. Abraham makes a servant to swear to him that he will get a wife for Isaac that is not from among the Canaanites. Now, it's significant that at a well, there is a meeting between this servant of Abraham and uh, a, a woman named Rebekah. And ironically enough, Rebekah is going to be the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, Nahor. So she's of good stock. Listen to what the text says. It tells us in chapter 26, um, now there was a famine in the land. I'm ahead of myself. I'm sorry. Chapter 24, uh, we read this. Uh, now, Abraham was old and well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. And he said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son, Isaac. So that is the commission from Abraham to his servant. And what we find is now Abraham 
once he understands that Isaac has a wife, a good wife from a good stock that is going to carry on the covenant promises, he can die. And that's what he does. Uh, he passes on. But it's important to understand here that he sets this in motion. And so the servant goes out and he comes to a well. And it's significant here that the servant is going to look for a woman who is generous of heart. And as he stops at a well, this woman, Rebecca, comes out with a jar on her shoulder. And as she does so, what we find is she offers to water the livestock of Abraham's servant. Listen, he prays this in verse 12 of chapter 24. Then he prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar so that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one that you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. As soon as he finishes praying that, what we find is that this woman named Rebecca comes to the well. And it is there they have this encounter. And in this encounter, there is set in motion the continuing, ongoing, unfolding uh, fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So Isaac's 15 minutes of fame back in uh, the previous chapter where he has a brief role as he encounters this potential death being offered as a firstborn. Uh, it's interesting that the rest of the text that is all about Isaac is all about Isaac the well digger. Now, here's this wife, Rebecca, that's met at a well, and she is going to go back and Isaac is going to marry her. And this is told in detail. The servant goes back and he retells the whole story in the rest of chapter 24. And then in chapter 25, Abraham dies. There is the birth of the two sons to Isaac, Jacob and Esau. We'll talk about them next week. But I want us then to jump to chapter 26. When we come to chapter 26, it begins something that sounds very familiar. Verse one, now there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. So the editor wants you to know this is a different event. And it says here, Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I'll be with you and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give these lands. and I will confirm the oath that I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands through your offspring. All nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commandments, my decrees, and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. Now, several things to note here. First of all, Isaac is driven into a foreign land because of a famine. Does that sound familiar? 
Yes. He goes there to meet with a Philistine king by the name of Abimelech. The text goes on and tells us that Isaac is afraid because Rebekah is such a beautiful woman that the Philistines are going to kill him and take Rebekah into one of the harems of the leaders of the Philistines. So what does Isaac do? He tells Abimelech that Rebekah is really his sister. Does this sound familiar? Yes. Isaac's just a chip off the old block. God's people just keep having these run-ins with their neighbors. And this is just beginning of it, as we'll see in a moment. Now, that's not the only connection to Abraham the writer is making. While in Gerar, God tells Isaac not to follow Abraham to Egypt, but to stay there. And God is going to use this opportunity to reiterate the promise that he made to Abraham. You just heard me read it. Now, Abraham is dead, and this promise is being transferred not to Ishmael, although there are other promises given to Ishmael, Abraham's son, but the Abrahamic covenant goes to Abraham. I want us to observe here the tenacity of God in keeping his promise, and it will come to a head, not so much in Genesis. It will come to a head in uh, the book of Exodus. And God will bring the people out from captivity and lead them into the promised land. So there is this king of Gerar. He's a Philistine. And if you fast forward in the Old Testament, you'll understand that the Philistines become the enemies of this newly formed nation of Israel. It comes to a head in the episode with David and Goliath. But what we find taking place is that as Isaac stays put, as he is told by God to do, then he prospers. So verse 12 of chapter 26 says, Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped them up, filling them with dirt or with the earth. So the Philistines get jealous that God is blessing Isaac. And what we find is they decide that they're not going to put up with that. Um, this story is found in the newest uh, Amazon Prime series called The Underground Railroad, where um, white supremacists go into a village among uh, some blacks who have been freed from their slavery, and they are beginning to prosper, and they go in and they kill all these people because they can't have these people prospering, and that's sort of the same uh, thing that is happening here. Now, what we find is that it's a bit ironic that while they are fearful of Isaac at this point, uh, later the Israelites will be fearful of the Philistines. And that, that's because they will progress in technology. They will develop weapons of war, et cetera, et cetera. Remember the armament of Goliath. He is just covered head to toe uh, with a helmet and uh, with a breastplate, and he has all kinds of 
uh, protection on him while David goes out simply with a slingshot. Let's come back to Isaac. So in verse 17, we're told that Isaac moved uh, away from there. Uh, if you jump down, it says, so Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And that's what God told him to do. Isaac then does something significant. He reopens the wells that had been dug in the time of his father, Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. And he gave them the same names his father had given them. So Isaac is continuing on as a well digger. And as a well digger, he is going to reopen this source of life. And it's significant to me anyways, that what he is going to name these wells that he is opening is symbolic in nature. And we'll come to that here in chapter 26. So we find here, uh, the Lord appears to Abraham again in chapter uh, 26, verse 24. That night, the Lord appeared to him and says, I'm the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. And Isaac built an altar there. Ding, ding, ding. Isn't that exactly what Abraham did too? And he called on the name of the Lord. He pitched a tent and there his servants dug a well. So there's this theme of this well that is being reopened and renamed. And so if you take a look and if you have a Bible in chapter 26, verse 26, the first well that is named is interesting. Verse 26 says, meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzvath, his personal advisor, and Philco, the commander of his forces. And Isaac asked them, why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? And they answered, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you that will do, uh, that will do us no harm, just as we did uh, not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Then Isaac makes a feast. And then what we find is that uh, he then begins to uh, name some of these wells. The first well that he names is interesting. You'll find it uh, in chapter 26. And if you come down to verse 19, it says, Isaac's servants dug a well in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water, which makes me think that maybe the treaty that Abimelech wants to make with Isaac is so that they have access to this fresh water. But I want you to notice what he names them. The herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, the water is ours. So there's a battle for possession of the land. So Isaac named the well Esek, which means strife. This is a source of strife, uh, possession of this well and control of the water source. Then it says he dug another well, but they quarreled, quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna. The name Sitna means opposition. So Esek means strife. Sitna means opposition. So it seems as though they're going to be fighting about these wells the whole time that uh, the Philistines and Isaac's family 
are in this same territory. But then it all changes. And in verse 32, after he had been approached by Abimelech to make a covenant, it says, that day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug. And they said, we found water. And Isaac then names this particular well, Sheba. And to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. So uh, Sheba uh, means oath. So there is this oath that they make. And he names this uh, well an oath. And it is giving to us this idea that they're going to make an agreement to get along. And as they get along, they'll both use this water source and they will create a sense of peace or as the Old Testament calls it, shalom. I think Isaac recognizes that the Lord has led him to this place and in digging these wells and giving them significant names. uh, I skipped over one of them actually is in verse 22. And I apologize for that. Another well they named Rehoboth. And Rehoboth means room. So the first couple of wells talk about strife and opposition. But the other two wells talk about there's enough room for all of us. And we're going to make a pledge. We're going to make a promise. We're going to make a covenant with you that we will get along and we will continue to share these resources. So Isaac, the well digger, is an individual that is looking to get along with people that are unlike him and his family. Now, let's fast forward for a moment to the New Testament. We all know that water is essential to life. Without it, we will die. And Jesus is traveling from Judah to the south up to Galilee. But he's going to pass through a section in the middle that is called Samaria. And Samaria was the hated enemies of the Jews. They would often go around this territory so that they wouldn't have to travel through it. But Jesus on this occasion in John chapter four travels through this territory. And what does he do? He stops at a well. And as he stops at a well, tired and thirsty, along comes this Samaritan woman. And so Jesus asked, just like Abraham's servant did, Uh, as he looked for a wife for Isaac, he asked this woman for a drink. And this Samaritan woman found it strange that a Jew would ask her for a drink. Now, she did not recognize him as Jesus the Christ. So Jesus used this request to teach a great lesson here. And in their conversation, they share this moment of community. And in this moment of community, Jesus answers in John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He answers her and he says, whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, what stands out is the fact that these two enemies find peace. It's true with Isaac and the Philistines. It's true with Jesus and the Samaritans. And it tells us of this ongoing promise 
this ongoing promise that Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 37 says, he says, hey, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Let him be satisfied. There'll be like a spring flowing up, sort of like a well that doesn't go dry. So these two connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament is significant because it does two things. First of all, it sustains us. So spiritually speaking, this inner resource, this inner well is asking God to keep us vibrant and refreshed. It is asking God to give us faith, to give us patience. And then on the other hand, around these wells, there's a place to create community. And in creating community, what we find is they share resources. Now, it's interesting to me that in Chinese thought, the well is symbolic for community. In other words, in ancient times, the well was both symbolically and often literally located at the center of the community. So from the well, the community drew water, the basic sustenance of life. But metaphorically, the well represented all the social resources of the community that were necessary to endure and to thrive. If the well fell into disrepair, if that life-giving water was polluted or diminished, the community suffered as a whole, not just one family, the community as a whole. And so in an ideal community, there is an abundance of resources that could be utilized when we think about our community, that is our church or our local community or the community of our family circles or friendship circles, think about it. People that have all kinds of resources and the ability to build bridges rather than walls. You know, our sustaining water of life and community is people. It's their interests, their dedication, their goals, their aspirations, their commitment to act their ability to serve, and all of that gives to us a sense of purpose. In other words, nothing can be sustained without healthy community that is not, that is being, uh, not being fully utilized uh, to its fullest potential. So as we turn the corner from this last year of this pandemic that we have all been in, and we've been all kind of at home sitting and twiddling our thumbs at times, just waiting to get back to normal. And now we are coming out of that. It's sort of like the wells are being redug. Yeah, the wells dried up, community was lost, opportunities were lost, experiences were lost, but now we can redig these wells. And I'm talking to us specifically as a church. We don't know what's ahead. It's an act of faith and patience. But if we can engage as a community, as a group of people, and we can utilize all of our resources to the glory of God and to give to other people a sense of peace and purpose, then my friends, what we will find is we are like Isaac carrying on the God-given promises from our own experience to the potential of other people experiencing it as well. So I, I read a recent blog by Nadia Bowles Weber, and she was talking about a film. I have not watched it yet, uh, but the film is called The Painter and the Thief. And I want to 
quote her as I close this morning. Here's what she says. Quote, I'm not someone who is known to get terribly excited if someone says to me, you just have to watch this Norwegian documentary. I'm also not someone who watches a Norwegian documentary two days in a row. But that is exactly what happened a few weeks ago with The Painter and the Thief. The documentary is a desperate search for answer about the theft of two paintings. So there's this Czech artist that seeks out and befriends this career criminal who actually stole her paintings. After inviting the thief to sit for a portrait, the two form this improbable relationship and an inextricable bond that will forever link these lonely souls. At one point, the documentary, in the documentary, the painter shows the thief the portrait that she has painted for him. Now, remember, as you, if you have an opportunity to watch this, he's a tough guy, he's a criminal, he's a drug addict, but he breaks down crying. Why? Because she saw him. And not just the tough guy, criminal, or drug addict. That's the easy part. What she saw was him who was worthy of love. The him who entered this world as a baby like the rest of us. The him whose mother abandoned him. The him who is smart and funny and tender if he wants to be. The him whom God loves. The him he dares not let anyone else see. And yet somehow she did. So Nadia Bowles-Weber continues, and she says this, on Friday during our daily prayer in the chapel, I read Richard Rohr's The Divine Mirror Meditation from his book, The Universal Christ. The line, quote, this is from Richard Rohr, when we learn to love anyone or anything, it is because they have somehow if just for a moment mirrored us truthfully and yet compassionately to ourselves. Nadia says, that struck me. And I asked those in prayer with me to name the people who mirrored their God-loved self to them. This desire to know and be known and love and be loved and serve and be served, this God knows and loves the tender sides, the hidden sides, the murky sides, the plugged well sides of our lives. And I think in order for us to kind of understand what Isaac did in building a relationship with people very different from him, what Jesus did in building a relationship with a woman who is very different than him, sharing common resources, sharing the source and sustenance of life. Well, that is all illustrated in this Norwegian documentary. So I found a clip. Yes, I did. And I leave you with the trailer of The Painter and the Thief. And maybe sometime we can all watch it and discuss it. Sometimes we are the painter and sometimes we are the thief. But we all need to unplug the wells and redig the wells of sources of life and purpose and community. That's my prayer as we head into the future for Shade Tree Community Church, for Willoughby, for our nation, and for our world. Let's watch this clip. Thanks for joining me.